Mr. Nelson Mandela will, within seconds, within seconds appear, and that will be the moment the world has been waiting for. On February 11, 1990, Nelson Mandela was released from prison in South Africa. He walked out of a prison on a gloriously sunny South African afternoon. And there is general agreement that his freedom begins a new era in South Africa. The years following his release are generally remembered as years of peace in South Africa. But in the township surrounding Johannesburg, in the areas designed for black South African workers to live in, there was significant violence. Up to 3,000 people were killed, many thousand more were wounded in these uh, civil war-like clashes. Many of the clashes were between Kosa and Zulu people. And the main way these two groups understood how to define each other, through language. Somebody was a Zulu because he spoke the Zulu language. Somebody was a Kosa because he spoke the Kosa language. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today on the show, Dividing Lines. Johann Arndt is a history professor at Virginia Military Institute. He says 300 years earlier in South Africa, Koso and Zulu didn't exist as distinct languages. His book, Divided by the Word, traces the colonial roots of how Kosa and Zulu came to see language as their dividing line. So in South Africa, the first European uh, settlers arrived in the 1650s. And this really began a history in South Africa of settler colonialism and also something that will be familiar, really a history of white supremacy rule. And uh, the most iconic sort of brand, if we want to call it that, of white supremacy rule known as apartheid uh, or apartheid more properly. It's an Afrikaans word. The system collapsed in 1990. Uh, an iconic moment of that collapse is the release of Nelson Mandela from Victor Verster prison after 20 years, after 27 years, really, of incarceration. And the next iconic movement is sort of the first non-racial democratic election in South Africa in 1994, which elects the same Nelson Mandela as the first um, black president of the new South Africa. What was that transition period like in South Africa after Nelson Mandela was released and became president? Was that a time of peace and joy? Oh, it was definitely a, a moment of peace and, and joy. However, um, it's also important to point out that um, while this sort of peaceful transition was going on, there was real violence in, in some areas of South Africa, but violence between uh, Africans, so Africans against Africans. Um, up to 3,000 people were killed, many thousand more were wounded in these uh, civil war-like clashes. For me, the, the civil, the civil war-like conflicts uh, were important because uh, when I read the testimonies of the participants of these clashes, what stood out for me was a clear articulation by the participants that these were really uh, clashes between Zulu and Kosa. So oftentimes we hear participants saying that uh, we were fighting the Zulu or we were fighting the Kosa. And then what was really important for me is how the participants defined Zuluness and Kosa-ness. And what, what stood out was that many of them defined Zuluness and Kosa-ness on the basis of language. Somebody was a Zulu because he spoke the Zulu language. Somebody was a Kosa because he spoke the Kosa language. And I asked myself, how did South Africa get to this point? And I do not mean this in terms of how did South Africa get to this violence, but rather how did South Africa get to a point where people defined themselves and others so clearly on the basis of language. And what did you find when you were looking to pull that thread and understand when it was that the Kosa and Zulu 
started seeing language differences as paramount between them? So 200, 300, 400 years earlier in South African history, and this is not only South Africa, this is really a global phenomenon. What we have are often oral vernaculars that are, are, are very regional, that are often not uh, necessarily mutually intelligible. So the first missionaries arrive in South Africa in the 1820s. Their primary goal was to convert Africans to Christianity. And for Protestant missionaries, the Bible is the important source of revelation. And so it was really important for them to translate the Bible into a local vernacular. And they have to make decisions as to whether all vernaculars are similar enough to be translated into only one written language or if they needed multiple ones. And the European missionaries initially are convinced that all the vernaculars can be translated into one, one single written language. And they are convinced uh, of that because they had read texts by earlier colonists and travelers who had already some uh, contact with the languages, and they had always, in their writings, promoted the idea that it's really one people, broadly speaking, surely, surely there are different chieftains, different clans, but it's broadly one people speaking one language. And so when the European missionaries arrive in the region, they are really looking for evidence that confirms uh, one people, one language paradigm. The American missionaries arrive a little bit later. They arrive in 1835. Uh, they go to South Africa trying to convert the Zulu uh, chieftain clan. Well, at this time, to be clear, the Zulu chieftain has evolved into a Zulu kingdom. So they are targeting the Zulu kingdom and they are wrapping their missionary purpose and identity really around this idea of converting the Zulu kingdom. And initially, they define Zuluness uh, on the basis of culture, but not language. This is really important. And as long as they define it on the basis of culture, they, they sort of agree with the European missionaries who had started earlier that, yes, it's all one language and one Bible translation, for example, will suffice. But that changes over time. How did the American missionaries come to change their mind that there were actually enough differences between the two languages or between the two that they should distinguish between them? So the American missionaries initially, uh, like I said, defined Zuluness on the basis of culture. So they argued, for example, the Zulus are more martial, more just, more honest, more chaste uh, than the rest of the population in the region. And as long as they define it that way, language didn't matter. But by the 1840s, one can see in their, in their writings, in their letters, in their journal entries, that they really become disillusioned with Zulu culture. Increasingly, they are, they are accusing the Zulu of dishonesty, of, li of licentiousness, for example. And so we see this, this cultural, this, this argument about cultural difference melting away. And I argue this is the point where they, where they think more about making language as a crucial uh, a defining marker of, of uh, uh, Zuluness. And one, one thing that I argue plays a role in this process, there are many factors that play a role, but one factor that one shouldn't underestimate is actually the influence of the African interpreters who are working with these American missionaries. And what is that influence? So, um, as I mentioned uh, a minute ago, by the time the Americans are working with the uh, 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 have arrived, they, are, they arrived in 18, 1835. The Zulu, is no, no, the Zulu are no longer a chieftain, they are actually a kingdom. And uh, the kingdom was created through a process of violent conquest and violent 
incorporation of other chiefdoms between 1816 and 1828. And listeners are certainly familiar with the man uh, Shaka, Shaka Zulu, who is sort of this iconic figure who um, is credited with, with leading this transformation. And so when, when the Zulu kingdom emerges, uh, we, can s- we can see in the historical record um, that the political elite of the Sulu kingdom started to argue that they are speaking better, more clearly, more properly than those people they conquered and incorporated, whom they accused of speaking improperly. And what is really interesting when one reconstructs the, the, the background of the African interpreters who work with the American missionaries, starting in the late 1840s, early 1850s, is that uh, almost all of these African interpreters uh, had been raised in the Zulu kingdom. In other words, had been uh, um, influenced uh, and, and their idea of language had been shaped by paying very close attention to fairly small differences. And I argue that uh, these African interpreters influenced how the American missionaries started to think about language uh, over time. So in the early 1850s, then we hear the American missionaries all of a sudden saying things like that the Zulu language is not only different from the other vernaculars, but it's actually superior to the other vernaculars. And, and I argue that that, that notion of, of superior really comes from the African interpreters and ultimately from the Zulu kingdom itself. Do you think these languages will continue to evolve to be more separate or more and more the same? I would say now <laughs> it, it will be very difficult to bring them back together because people have been trained uh, to think of them as different languages. They have made them important markers of what it means to be Zulu and Xhosa. So I think that moment really passed when missionaries in the middle of the 19th century decided uh, that they were separate languages and that they needed to be developed separately. There are a lot of things in your daily life that one accepts as normal, as natural, as having always been there, sort of a timelessness. And the really interesting thing is to to unpack the history that is behind these seemingly normal things and to realize that there was a time where they were not normal, where they didn't maybe even exist. Johan, thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. Thank you so much for having me. Johan Arndt is a history professor at Virginia Military Institute and the author of Divided by the Word, Colonial Encounters and the Remaking of Zulu and Kosa Identities. Sudan experienced decades of violent conflict in the 90s and aughts, including the genocide in Darfur. When we tell the history of those conflicts, it's usually numbers and dates. Daniel Rothbard and Karina Korostalina are professors at George Mason University and co-directors of the Program on Prevention of Mass Violence at the Carter School at George Mason. They recorded oral histories with Sudanese people about what it was like to actually live through those years and what they thought justice after the violence would look like. Daniel and Karina, your team recorded more than 100 oral histories with Sudanese people in 2021. What was going on then in Sudan? Why did you record the stories? Well, there was so much violence that was going on in the years leading up to 2021. And basically, the people who we interviewed have had years of witnessing horrific violence. 
uh, I think it was very important that we not only ask people about the experiences while they were attacked by forces or during the destruction of their villages, but they also were refugees. So we also asked them about their experiences in refugee camps while they were moving from one camp to another and trying to accommodate a new community. Were people eager to talk? Yes, absolutely. Because one of our objectives also was asking them, what does the future look like in Sudan? What does justice look like in Sudan, which is an extremely important question for promoting peace in this war-torn country. This idea of just peace was very important and central for our research, because usually the idea of just peace comes from prescriptions of uh, total justice or some ideas of global justice and global peace, but it's not what really happening on the ground. And more and more research now really look into more intersubjective ideas in how people on the ground see justice and peace, how they see these complexities between them, but also how they want to build peace, which not only will reduce violence, but also will bring back mm -hmm. justice to these people. So their local voices were extremely important for understanding the future of the country. You wrote a one-page summary and you broke into categories various kinds of experiences they shared. One, for instance, was what was life like before the war for you? What did you learn from most people in answer to that question? Well, most people conveyed a sense of peace and harmony with their neighbors. They also have a very strong image of prosperity. A lot of our respondents and their stories were speaking about uh, beautiful fields of uh, wonderful meals they were sharing with other people, the prosperity they had, and this community engagement where everyone was sharing what they have. This like the communities were like a family for them. In a summary you wrote about these stories, you said that some people said we were haunted to this day mm -hmm. by the images of those killed, and many people expressed a sense of fear of their own death, which has fostered in them a sense of self-preservation at yeah. the expense of the well-being of others. That's not something most of us encounter in our lives. Right. You're mentioning one of the really stunning responses is the the layer of trauma that they live with for a very long time includes nightmares. It includes just repetition of fear, very difficult to, to sleep, insomnia. And the to me, the the most disturbing or one of the disturbing aspects was the sense that they live in fear and are more distrustful of their neighbors and even of loved ones, that they become more isolated uh, from others, um, even, even very close to them. And this, of course, they regretted. They're not saying this is in any way defendable, but it, it was, it's, a, it's a confession that they hope to overcome to not live in fear every day. And Karina, you have mentioned also it's not just the terrors that they experienced, which were horrific enough, but those who survived escaped and lived as best they could and then eventually found refugee camps, which often weren't much of a refuge. Yes, together with this experience of people moving from one camp to another camp, having conflicts with host communities, being expelled from the host communities, not accepted, because people in host communities also experience economic deprivation and problems. We also found that these people were able to find resilience. And this resilience is extremely important for people who experience trauma. Because usually people who experience trauma, a lot of research show, they lost optimistic view for the future. They lost belief in peace and justice. And 
resilience is the way how people can find way back. And this resilience we built through the help for other people. Resilience we built through engagement with communities, building new relationships. You also asked them about their ideas of justice and what that means to them. Yeah, actually, it was very important findings which we were able to um, identify. What we found is actually then how people see the justice does not really based on violence they experienced. Opposite is true. How people see the justice is based how they saw their peaceful life before. For example, people who saw their peaceful life before as a, a great relationship with neighbors and a great relationship in the family, they want restoration of this relations with neighbors as a justice. Those who saw it as a prosperity and economic um, development, they as a justice, they see that they will have a retribution and economic development in their communities. Those who saw peace as the kinship or positive relationship as a family of the entire village, when everyone was a family helping each other, building houses together for each other and so on, these people really see the importance of restoration of this family fabric of society. So what is really our research was able to show us, in addition to classic approach to restorative justice, they should be not only asked about their traumas and their experience of violence, they actually have to be asked what is the peace, how they imagine peace, what was peace for them before and how they want to restore it. When you collated all of these interviews and looked at what people sought as a vision of justice, did you come up with your own recommendations for what justice should look like there? This is a very interesting question. We really have to build our recommendation based on local voices, based on empowering people, giving marginalized communities ability to define what is important for them, and looking at the indicators of peace and justice which arrive from the people who experience violence. Mm -hmm. So, of course, we frame, we can frame and we can bring particular terms or particular strategies how to achieve, but we really give priority to local communities and local voices. Most wars are started by military or, and political leaders. They don't usually die in war. They basically compel or in, in, entice other people who die. In a given year, approximately 150,000 to 300,000 people die in war around the world. And those aren't military leaders. And w one of the dangers of looking at war in terms of battlefield casualties and, and, and armament is a failure to see the, the real lives of people who are experiencing, and in many cases dying, in war. And that's where we say, again, it is the wisdom of civilians, or those engaged in war, whose, whose words we need to take seriously and to showcase. Um, we're not giving power to them, we're just giving a platform for them to convey their power of, of their knowledge. Um, so this is one of the important takeaway themes, I think, from our study. Karina, you were born in Ukraine, now, of course, an American citizen, and you plan to go to Ukraine before too long. These experiences of these people have special urgency, I'm sure, in your own mind about what the situation is for Ukrainians now in their current war? Absolutely. Um, first of all, as I uh, already mentioned, we host the um, events 
for for uh, human rights organization and humanitarian organization here so they can uh, their voices can be heard we recent one of the recent events here when we host here in Carter school was uh, with uh, women prisoners during uh, Russian occupation of Ukraine. So we want these voices to be heard and analyzed. But we uh, also have a project supported by National Science Foundation, together with my colleague from Virginia Tech, Gerald Toll, where we also interview people. I just returned back from Prague and Warsaw, where I was interviewing refugees. And we also done surveys with support of our local partners, similar as in Sudan we did to find voices of people and to find what is important for them. Because one of the key findings, what you see here in Sudan and what I find in um, uh, Ukraine, is not homogenization of society, how it's presented in multiple opinion pieces in newspapers and so on. It's not like entire country thinks the same or feels the same. People have multiple experiences and multiple ways of supporting peace and war and trauma. So to give voices for multiple uh, views and for multiple uh, perspectives, really important for developing policies towards the peace and justice. Uh, one of the major causes of the wars in Sudan was a struggle over the soul of the nation. And what that means is that the, the, the rebels fighting the government were trying to redefine the country in a way that promoted human rights, that promoted social justice, that basically recognized the diversity of different beliefs and cultures. And this was, this was a, a major conscious aspect of the cause of the war. And... Um, um, this, you know, this kind of struggle is something that that is happens in other countries, and um, basically a struggle for um, equal treatment under the law and human rights um, of uh, of all people. So that's something that I feel is an important reminder for all of us uh, around the world to take the lessons learned from these, uh, these civilians. Daniel Rothbard and Karina Korostelina are professors and co-directors of the Program on the Prevention of Mass Violence at the Carter School at George Mason University. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. For centuries, large populations of Jewish and Muslim people coexisted peacefully in Algeria and other parts of Northern Africa. When French colonial rule took power there, things soured, and many Jewish North Africans left for France. But they brought Muslim Arab musical cultures with them. Jonathan Glasser is an anthropology professor at William & Mary, he says we can learn a lot about the relationships between Algerian Jews and Muslims by looking at their musical collaborations and connections. Jonathan, you've been looking into Muslim-Jewish interactions around music in Algeria. What in particular? Well, one of the things I'm really interested in thinking through is what kind of story music can tell us that's different from the story we might be accustomed to. So one of the things that people often talk about in the case of Algeria is you have a deep story of Jewish-Muslim interaction over many, many centuries with French colonial rule, which starts in 1830 and ends in 1962. We often talk about a sort of souring of relations over time that has a lot to do with uh, French power and politics in imposing certain categories on Algerian society. And eventually, once 
Uh, the Algerian War ends in 1962. Algeria gains its independence. And Algerian Jews leave en masse for France with the French settler population. So usually it's a story about Jews becoming more and more French over time. Uh, but music starts to tell a different story. So what we start to see is, first of all, all the way up to independence and even afterward, Jewish musicians, and there were, very, there was lots of them, there were many Jewish musicians, were involved in uh, a whole bunch of Arabic music scenes, both very traditional and more popular scenes. And they were involved all the way up to independence and even afterward. And for that majority of Jews who left for France, they brought that music with them. So even if people were speaking French at home, for example, by 1962, people, many households were still singing and listening to music in Arabic. And the story that it tells is that there was more Muslim Arabic influence on the music the Jewish musicians were bringing back to France than we had thought? In some ways, you know, I sometimes shy away from the idea of influence because influence starts to have this sense that, okay, you have this group of people and you have that group of people and one of them influences the other. Here, what we're dealing with more so is a sense of Jews and Muslims sharing a common musical culture. They're playing together often in the same groups. Uh, they are listening to one another. And they're also using the same melodies, often the same texts. So it's really a question of a kind of entanglement with one another. And that's the spirit and memory of entanglement that Algerian Jews wind up bringing with them when they leave for France. Was there a song you remember that first struck you this way, that you heard this in the song and were mesmerized by it? My memory of the first time I became really interested in this was a cassette that I actually picked up in Morocco. It was a recording of a very famous Algerian Jewish singer named Salim Halali. He had this kind of amazing career that brought him to France and to Morocco and throughout Algeria. When I first heard his singing, I knew that he was Jewish. I was captivated by the sound of this particular kind of music. I remember playing it for a Moroccan friend of mine in New York. And I said, what is this particular song I'm hearing? And he said, oh, this is a particular kind of music that's from Algeria. To hear it, you need to go to Algeria or to the eastern part of Morocco. And that's what I eventually did. This is beautiful. And what are you hearing? Well, I hear a beautiful melody. I hear uh, a singer with a really captivating voice. Salim Hilali was famous for this particular kind of hoarse voice and very flexible voice. I also hear a group of singers singing, backing him up. It's very likely that he's playing with both Jewish and Muslim instrumentalists and backup singers here. And then he's singing for probably a live audience that was made up of Muslim and Jewish lovers of this music. So where does that take you? What does it suggest to you? First of all, it, it gets my interest going, right? So that eventually brought me to study this particular kind of music that that song is associated with, the classical and semi-classical Andalusi music tradition of Algeria and of uh, of Morocco and Tunisia as well. So of these North African Maghreb countries. And this is music that is said to come from El Andalus, from medieval Muslim Spain. So from before 1492. And according to the story, it was brought by Muslim and Jewish refugees from El Andalus to North African cities. And it was preserved over the centuries and you know, exists all the way up until today. 
introduce me to a few more of the songs that really illustrate this music of this period? Sure. The first one that we're going to listen to probably from just before World War I, and this is a recording from Algiers, and it's a Jewish Algerian musician, a very famous one named Edmond Nathan Yafil, who was instrumental in helping to revive and preserve and in some ways modernize the Andalusi classical music tradition of Algeria. And one of the things that's significant about this is, you know, most of the musicians who Yafil was working with at this time were Algerian Jews, right? So they were uh, a mix of professional and amateur musicians who were experts in this particular kind of music. This time we're going to move to the western part of Algeria, to the very well-known city of Tlemcen. And it's a center of this Andalusian music tradition uh, in a particular version associated with that western part of Algeria. We're going to hear some singing in Arabic from some of these old poems uh, that, that some of which date back to medieval Spain. And this is an interesting group. It's being led by this very famous sheikh or master musician named Sheikh Larbi bin Sari. He was Muslim and he's leading an ensemble of professional musicians, most of whom are Muslim. There is at least one Jewish performer who's in this group. Uh, whose name is Brahim Dari. And let's take a quick listen to this. So you hear this 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 choral singing, right? This this group of men singing this particular kind of melody, right? Going going from this la 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 la, right? This very particular sound associated with this Andalusi classical music tradition, and you have Sheikh Larbi surrounded by these other uh, musicians. One of them is this figure, Brahim Dere, who is an important uh, instrumentalist, a Jewish person from, from Tlemcen, who played a lot with, with Sheikh, Sheikh Larbi. And one of the fascinating things about this, you know, nowadays, when you go to a music association or any kind of ensemble space in Tlemcen, typically you'll have this picture of Sheikh Larbi on the wall, right? It's kind of as a symbol of this classical tradition of that city. Uh, Dere'i is less well-known, but one of the fascinating stories I heard from, uh, from a uh, music enthusiast and performer from, from Tlemcen was that at one point, sometime perhaps in the 1930s, Sheikh Larbi was invited to play for a wedding in a city a little ways away, and he couldn't make it, and so he sent Dere'i to play in his place. And when Dari arrived, people just assumed that this was Sheikh Larbi, right? They didn't know what Sheikh Larbi looked like, but they assumed it was him and he simply played it as if he was Sheikh Larbi. Mm -hmm. So one of the really interesting things in that story is, you know, there's this idea, at least among some people, that Jewish and Muslim musicians were not necessarily distinguishable as being Muslim or being Jewish, and then there's also people who would argue actually that there were distinctions. And that's a really interesting part of the story that I don't personally know entirely what to make of, but I'm really interested in exploring. I totally see that. So let's take a look at a, a little bit of a different style. This is a recording that I find to be fascinating and quite moving. It's a style of singing that is thought of as derived from that Andalusi classical form, but it's a little bit more popular. The language is a little bit more colloquial Maghrebi Arabic, colloquial Algerian Arabic. And the singer is Saud Wahrani or Saud Lorane. He was a professional musician. He also owned a bar. Um, and he was a great voice of the early 20th century in Oran. Tragically, he was um, in Marseille, in France, uh, during uh, the Second World War, 
And he was deported along with many, many other Jews from Marseille in 1943 and, um, and died at the Sobibor concentration camp. But we have these amazing recordings of him, and we're going to listen to a little bit of one of these. Oh, yeah, his voice is arresting. It's amazing, right? Yeah. And there's this quality about it. It's kind of this dryness. It's just something, it's this particular sound I associate very strongly with the western part of Algeria around Oran. And some people say that you can hear a little bit of the countryside of Bedouin music and diction in his singing and his, in his, his speech. And the words are really fascinating. So he's singing... Ah, I complain to you of my fate, O razor of the heavens. Take care of my condition, yes, that I might be eased. O razor of the heavens, Yarafe Sama, is an allusion to a verse in the Quran, right? So he's quoting Muslim scripture in the mouth of this Jewish singer who's singing uh, in, the, in probably in the 1930s here. Um, and I find that to be remarkable and, and not at all unusual, right? That's something that was considered very natural. You even find Jewish performers of this era who were specialists in singing songs in praise of the Prophet Muhammad. Every once in a while, that would raise an eyebrow, hmm. um, both from Muslims and Jews. But in many cases, it was not considered that strange. It's fascinating. I agree. So let's move to something totally different. This is a later recording from after 1962, after Algerian independence, and it's a recording made by an Algerian Jewish singer known as Lin Monti, sometimes also known as Leila Fateh. Uh, and she left Algeria after independence, but she continued to sing in Arabic, in French, sometimes in Spanish, in France, largely for an expatriate Algerian Jewish audience. And what's fascinating about this song is that she's singing in a style where she's mixing French and Arabic. So what I want you to listen to here is when is she singing in French? Most of it is in French. And when she's shifting into Arabic. Let's take a listen. tell between the French and Arabic. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a little it's a little hard to catch, right? But it's, you know, it's it's totally contagious music. It's it's very difficult not to like this. Yeah. Um right, it's called Magita et mon pays. So my guitar and my country. So what ha- what happens is this, she's singing in French, sing sing my guitar, and then she says in Arabic, sing sing of my country. She shifts back to French, my soul wanders in an, in Arabic about it. And then back in French, and my heart sinks in the night. The path that separates us is suddenly shortened when the, and then in Arabic, she says, istikhbar, the prelude of my guitar, this is back in French, comes to speak to me of Algeria. Right, so this incredible longing in the sense of exile that she's singing about. And she's singing to an audience of other Algerians in, in France, right? Uh, both Jews and Muslims who have found themselves living uh, in the exile. So I have just a few more examples I wanted to share. We've been talking about profane music, songs that are in Arabic and French, and that are largely about nostalgia and love 
and these profane topics. But we really have to keep in mind also that there's other sorts of interactions happening um, that have to do with music and Muslims and Jews that are bringing us from the profane toward the sacred. So I want to give a couple of examples here. So we're going to listen to a, uh, a piece, uh, a very famous piece from the Andalusi classical tradition called Yatib Aishi. And this is a recording, a home recording from the 1950s of Sheikh Radwan bin Sari. So we just heard Larabi bin Sari, right? Uh, this famous figure from Tlemcen. This is by his son, who is also a fantastic voice. Listen to what he can do with his voice. Can you do that? Well, not like that. But that's that's that sound of melisma, right? Which is singing uh, one syllable, right? And he's also doing a lot of rubato, right? He's really playing with his melody. And part of that is he's playing solo, right? It's just him on the oud, on the air blute, and his voice. So he has this certain freedom to do that, Sheikh Radwan. Let's take a, another listen to something else. And I'm not going to say anything... Uh, quite yet, but we're going to see the connection. So if we take a look at Hashkivenu. Singing in unison. Yeah, no, it's fantastic, right? It's it's this very exciting thing. So so what you just heard was a recording, I believe it's also from the 1950s, this time from Morocco, in a synagogue where there was a great interest in the Algerian classical music tradition. And what they're doing is they're singing a Hebrew prayer, Hashkivenu, which is a very well-known uh, prayer. It's it's used uh, in in pretty much all synagogues. And they are using the same basic melody that we just heard in Yatib Aishi by Sheikh Radwan. So it's a melody that they're, you could say maybe they're borrowing or that they're sharing with that profane repertoire from Arabic and they're bringing it into the sacred service yes. right, in the synagogue. Yes. So this is not only about people sharing a common musical culture, but then also using some of that um, that musical culture in a different way, a, w- a way that's more specifically Jewish or Muslim, because we have to keep in mind that we can also find similar sorts of Muslim recruitment of those melodies uh, or sharing of those melodies in Sufi practices and in, in uh, shrines and mosques. You play and sing in a Middle Eastern music ensemble. What do you play? And what is the joy that you take from that? You know, I've, I've played for many years with the William and Mary Middle Eastern Music Ensemble directed by Anne Rasmussen. Uh, and we've done lots of great things. I've learned a huge amount of music from the Mashriq, right, from the Arab East, uh, from Egypt and, and eastward. Uh, and we've also gotten a chance to play some of the North African music that I write about and even have brought um, guests and friends from, uh, from Wujda in Morocco, from the group Ahbab Sheikh Saleh. Uh, and it's been fantastic. I've learned a huge amount. For me, it's really central to the research process Musicians say lots of really interesting things about themselves and about other musicians in those spaces between the pieces, right? You're playing something and you finish and then it suddenly jogs a memory. And some of my absolute favorite stories I've ever heard came in those moments. So one of the things I've been doing the past few years is working with some very old documents that are in Judeo-Arabic. These are manuscripts They're in Arabic, but they're written using Hebrew letters. These are from the western part of Algeria. And a number of years ago, 
in the ensemble with uh, with guests from Ahbab Sheikh Saleh in uh, this eastern city of Wujda in Morocco, they brought with them a beautiful Sufi song. It's called Al Fiya Shia. It's a very, very famous uh, kind of hymn. It's very much associated with Sufism, with Islam. And we had learned this with the group. I'm sitting in my office looking through this manuscript. It's very difficult to read. A few months later after this concert, I'm deciphering this Judeo-Arabic script and all of a sudden I realize that what's written here is the song that we had just been performing. So first of all, I don't think I would have noticed that unless I had really internalized that song from playing it with musicians. And the other thing is it shows you that in this community in Oran, these are Jews who are living under Spanish rule in the 17th century, and they were singing in Arabic songs that were associated with Muslim practice and pairing it with Hebrew songs and prayers. That's a beautiful story. This is fascinating. Jonathan Glasser, thank you for talking on With Good Reason. Thank you so much, Sarah. I've had a great time speaking with you. Jonathan Glasser is an anthropology professor at William & Mary. Join Virginia Humanities and the University of Virginia's Karsh Institute of Democracy in Richmond, April 20th and 21st. Hear from veteran political journalist Margaret DeLeff and media pioneer Evan Smith about the future of journalism and democracy. To register, Google Virginia Humanities News Summit. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monacan Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Cassandra Deering and Aviva Casto are our interns. Special thanks to Jenny Taylor for booking assistance. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening. <laughs>